Let's talk finance. Wouldn't it be convenient to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one spot? Yahoo Finance does just that. It consolidates your portfolio views and offers expert analysis, making it easier to manage your investments. Let's not beat around the bush. You want to grow your portfolio, fight inflation, pay off debts, and achieve financial freedom. Yahoo Finance provides the news, data, and tools to make that happen. You may think you've covered all the bases, savings, researching, and investing smartly. But to truly excel, you need Yahoo Finance in your corner. A holistic perspective is crucial for success, and Yahoo Finance ensures you have it. With a massive community of over 90 million users monthly, Yahoo Finance is here to guide you on your path to financial success. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. In my early days, I faced a pivotal moment in my career. Instead of following the herd into traditional finance, I charted my own course. Despite skepticism, I founded my investment firm driven by a belief in economic truth and fiscal responsibility. Through perseverance, I established myself as a leading voice in finance, proving that sometimes blazing your own path is the best way to succeed. To get what you want, sometimes you have to challenge the status quo and blaze your own trail. That's what Harry's did. Seeing people tricked by expensive razors, Harry's took a stand. Instead of pricey options, they offer high-quality razors at a fraction of the cost. That's why when it comes to grooming my face, I use Harry's. Harry's understands the value of quality without breaking the bank. Their razors provide a smooth shave every time, and their shaving gel leaves my skin feeling refreshed and moisturized. So don't settle for the status quo. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com gold. That's harrys.com gold for a $3 trial set. The Peter Schiff Show. Well, I am finally back in the United States, well, in Puerto Rico, which technically is part of the United States. It's a territory, not a state, after my extended trip through uh, Italy. And, you know, I recorded that one podcast uh, from Italy, and on the very next day, we had probably the most volatile day uh, in memory. In fact, what happened that morning was we got some weak economic data that came out of China, and then we got some more weak economic data that came out of Germany. And that immediately caused yields to drop around the world. And in the United States, for the first time, we had the yields on the 10-year Treasury dip below the Fed funds rate. So the entire yield curve out to 10 years was inverted. And in fact, the 30-year yield hit a new low uh, for this uh, whole uh, quantitative easing 0% interest rate cycle. The 10-year did not quite do that yet, but the 30-year did. And as soon as this happened, as soon as the curve inverted, I think it triggered a lot of sell programs in the stock market. And stocks got clobbered. In fact, by the end of the day, the Dow Jones was down 800 points, one of the worst point drops in Dow Jones history, not one of the worst percentage drops, but 800 points is a lot of points. And of course, as soon as this happened, the media began to cover the possibility of a recession to a a much greater degree than they had in the past. And if you remember, 
I said that this was coming. In fact, I said that I thought maybe the media was waiting to flip the narrative on Trump, which is now exactly what they've done. Because all of a sudden, a media which was pretty much buying the booming economy narrative uh, now is questioning whether the economy is actually strong. And in fact, now you have Donald Trump accusing the media of being involved in some kind of conspiracy to make the economy look bad. And in other words, a lot of the data that's been coming out that indicates that the economy is weak, that the economy is slowing, that this is just fake news, that this is just being fabricated by the media trying to tape down Trump. Because obviously Donald Trump knows that he is not going to get reelected if the economy is in recession or even if the stock market is in an official bear market. Because Donald Trump's claim to presidential fame, the reason he believes he is the best president ever is because we have the greatest economy ever and because we have a booming stock market. And he's basically said that stocks going up is an indication that his policies are working. So if stocks are going down, if we're in a recession, well then by his own standard, he is a failure. And if his presidency failed, then why should the public reelect him? So basically what Trump is now saying is that this is fake news. So, you know, when he ran for president, he said that the numbers were fake in that the economy was worse than the numbers suggest, right? Because, and that I agreed with him at that time, that the economy was not in as good a shape as the numbers were, uh, you know, suggesting. And that's why he won, because the public knew that the economy was much worse than they were being told by government and by Wall Street. But now Trump is saying the same thing, except for the opposite reason. He's saying the economy is much better than what the numbers suggest, right? I mean, for a while, he loved the numbers, right? Especially the low unemployment rate. But of course, he ignored the fact that the unemployment rate, at least the official rate, was dropping during the entire time. Obama was president. And when Trump ran, he correctly pointed out that that was a phony statistic. But as soon as he became president and the trend under Obama continued, now he loves those numbers, right? He no longer thinks they're fake because they're his. But now, as you're starting to see evidence that the economy is weakening, and there's plenty of evidence. I mean, look at the retail sales numbers. Look at the numbers that we just got from Macy's. I mean, horrific numbers. And it's not just one retailer. This is happening across the board throughout the United States. Like I read this article on Zero Hedge last week, and I think it said that only 42% of Americans can afford to take a vacation, right? Which is a very low number, right? 42% of Americans. And of course, if you're talking about a vacation, that means you have a job, right? Because if you don't have a job, right? Life is one big vacation. But 42% of the people who are employed, who have jobs, can't even afford to take a vacation. Because if they take a vacation, they're they're not going to be able to pay their bills. And of course, I mean, obviously, a lot of vacations are paid, so people can't even afford to take a vacation when they're getting paid their salary because they don't have the money for the vacation, right? So they stay at home, right? They call it a, a staycation, right, where you can't travel because you don't have the money. But, you know, Americans, once upon a time, always traveled when, you know, they had time off for work. They took advantage of their vacations. They didn't stay at home. They traveled. They did stuff. 
And, but now they can't. And it's not because they don't want to. It's because they can't afford it. You know, a lot of people are saying, oh, you know, one of the things that Americans really want now, the millennials, is they, they want to pay for experiences. They don't want to buy stuff. They want to buy experiences. Well, a vacation is about an experience. It's about uh, memories that you're building. Uh, but people can't afford this. It's not because they don't want to. But this is not a sign of a strong economy. If the economy was strong, more people would be able to afford to take vacations. The fact that they can't is just more anecdotal evidence that the economy is very weak. But, of course, some of the best evidence of how weak the economy is comes from President Trump and the policies that he is demanding or that he is now considering. Of course, one being uh, demanding that the Federal Reserve slash interest rates by 100 basis points. I mean, that's what he's out again saying today. We need a 100 basis point interest rate cut. Interest rates are 2%. If we cut them by 100 basis points, we're going to go all the way down to 1%. 1% was the interest rate that Alan Greenspan um, set after the bursting of the dot-com bubble, after the 9-11 terrorist attacks, and the economy was in a recession. And that's what caused Greenspan to lower rates to 1%. Donald Trump wants rates to be at 1% again. Well, if the economy is so great, why do we need to return interest rates to the level that we had during a recession following the bursting of a stock market bubble and the 9-11 terrorist attacks? But not only does uh, the president want massive monetary stimulus, and by the way, we already have monetary stimulus right now. The Fed just cut rates, right? That was a stimulus. They called off quantitative tightening. That was a stimulus. And they indicated that more rate cuts are coming. So that's the stimulus. So we have monetary stimulus. And we have massive fiscal stimulus because we have the largest budget deficits in our history. In fact, the budget deficit for this year is already long bigger than it was for the entirety of last year. Right. Those numbers came out, I think, a week ago. But we already have this massive fiscal stimulus. But that's not enough for Trump because now there's all these rumors, and I'm sure they're true, that the Trump administration is thinking of cutting capital gains taxes, having an emergency temporary payroll tax cut, right? Payroll tax holiday. That is a stimulus. That is a pure Keynesian stimulus. Why do we need more stimulus when we've got so much stimulus? And again, the cut, the payroll tax cut that they are contemplating would not be paid for. They're not going to uh, raise other taxes. They're not going to cut government spending. It's all going to be deficit spending. That's going to be the stimulus, uh, the deficit. But we have the biggest deficit in our history, so that should already be a big stimulus. But Donald Trump is saying, no, no, that's not enough. We need more fiscal stimulus. We need more monetary stimulus. Oh, but we have the greatest economy ever. Right. We're nowhere close to recession. He says that again. We're not anywhere near recession. Well, this is a bunch of BS. Obviously, if we weren't close to recession, the president wouldn't be looking for monetary and fiscal stimulus to prop up the economy. Strong economies don't need to be artificially propped up. It's weak economies that need to be artificially propped up. I mean, you can't have your cake and eat it, too. You can't claim that the economy doesn't need a stimulus, but then advocate for a stimulus. But that's exactly what Donald Trump is doing. And the media obviously is having a field day with this. I mean, they're finally questioning the narrative. In fact, I was watching this interview uh, with Larry Kudlow the other day where they read a quote from Kudlow from December 
of uh, 2007, which was the the month that the Great Recession actually started, or the quarter. So we were already in recession when Larry Kudlow made this statement, and his statement was, you know, the pessimistas are wrong, and he was basically referring to guys like me because there weren't that many pessimistas on CNBC other than me at that time. But he basically was saying that the pessimistas are wrong, that there's no recession anywhere in sight. Of course, we're already in a recession, that the economy is great, that the Bush economy is rolling, that it's going to keep on going. There's nothing to worry about. It's the greatest story never told, right? It's Goldilocks, all this stuff. And so then Kudlow has to admit that he got that wrong, right? But then he kind of pretends that a few months later he was getting uh, bearish and thought to be a recession. That's BS. I mean, I was on his show in early 2008, and I remember watching his show, and he wasn't bearish. He was still optimistic. He was optimistic until we went over the edge of a cliff. But, you know, one of the things that Kudlow said was that in defense of himself, he said nobody predicted uh, that recession, that nobody, and that he didn't know, he didn't personally know of anybody back then in December of 2007 who was calling for a severe recession, right? Well, buh, I mean, what about me? I mean, what about chop liver? I mean, obviously he knew about me. I was one person because I was on his show. I mean, not only was I on other shows, but I was going on shows all over the place in 2007 calling for recession. I was on Fox News. I was on CNN. I was on CNBC. And I was on CNBC on Cudlow's show saying that we were headed for a severe recession. In fact, we're putting together uh, a little video that we'll be putting up soon, just showing a little montage of some of my appearances on on Cudlow's show. A lot of them I can't even find, but we have a few of them because I know I was on a lot more than the ones we were able to you know, pick up on YouTube. But it still should be a, 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 a funny clip because clearly uh, there were people that saw that great recession coming. It's just that Cudlow was not among them. And one of the reasons that Larry Kudlow was incapable of understanding how bad the problem was, right, how how severe a recession we were headed for back in 2007 was because he was blinded by politics, right? He was a loyal Republican and there was a Republican president and he felt obligated to talk about how good the economy was because there was a Republican president. Well, if he was that partisan as a TV show host, Can you imagine how much more partisan he is today when he actually works at the White House? He works for Donald Trump. So if his partisanship was so strong in 2007 that he couldn't see the financial crisis coming in the Great Recession, obviously, how is he going to see it now? I mean, he is so far gone at this point. He is so entrenched in uh, in this administration. And of course, the only hope that Trump has of a second term is if the voters think the economy is good. And so there's no way that Larry Kudlow is going to acknowledge that there's a problem. Now, if the recession blows up, which it probably will, right, they've already decided what they're going to do, right? They're going to blame it on the Fed. They're going to blame it on China. And then they're going to deny it exists because Trump might say, look, the economy is good. All these numbers are a lie. These statistics are a lie. It's the media out to get me, right? They, don't, they want to sabotage my reelection. So they want to pretend that the economy is weak when it's actually strong. But I mean, that is probably going to be uh, a, a one of the worst campaign strategies out there. And again, the markets still don't get this, that there is a high probability 
that Trump is going to lose. And in fact, look at who is shooting up in the polls now is Elizabeth Warren. In fact, I think the online betting markets uh, have her uh, with a better, higher probability of winning uh, than uh, than uh, Joe Biden. And, you know, she's going to be a, a, a tough opponent for Trump if the economy is in recession. But again, again, so will any of the Democratic nominees, as bad as they are. If the economy is in recession, right, he's toast, right? I mean, that tr- Trump is right now saying, hey, you got to vote for me because otherwise the economy is going to crash. Well, if it's already crashed, if we're already in a recession, well, then what is the reason that Trump's going to give? But the markets still don't get this, right? All of the people who thought Trump had no chance at winning. And believe me, in 2016, very few people on Wall Street gave Trump a chance of winning, right? They thought he he couldn't win, and then he won. Well, now those people think he can't lose. Well, he can lose, and he probably will lose uh, if the recession uh, starts before the 2020 election. And you have a lot of big banks now and big, uh, you know, forecasters who do believe the recession is going to start before the election. Now, they don't realize how severe it's going to be. I, I hear a lot of forecasts of a recession and people think that, well, it's going to be a mild recession. Why? Why would this recession be mild? There's no reason to believe that the next recession would be mild. Busts are typically proportional to the booms that precede them, right? The more heroin that you take to get high, the, the worse it is when, you know, you, you have to come down. I mean, the bigger the withdrawal when the drugs are leaving your system. Well, we've never had this much monetary heroin, right? The amount of stimulus that we had since the 08 financial crisis is unprecedented, right? They pulled out the, you know, the stops. They, they threw everything but the kitchen sink at the economy. QE1, QE2, QE3, 0% rates for all these years. So because of all that stimulus and all the mistakes, remember, the more stimulus you have, the more mistakes you have, right? Like the drunker you get, the stupider you're going to act, right? And the more things you're going to do that you regret the morning after. Well, everything that's been done for the last 10 years, we're going to regret. It's all foolish. It's all a mistake. It was all made by an economy high on you know, cheap money on artificially low interest rates and quantitative easing. So since this was the biggest boom ever, as far as how much stimulus was thrown in the economy, and because of that, we made more mistakes, we made bigger misallocations of resources, more malinvestments than ever before. Why would you expect a shallow recession? This should be the worst recession we've ever had. We need a bigger recession to unwind all the imbalances, all the mistakes that were created during this boom. So the people who are predicting recession are half right. They're right that a recession is coming, but they are wrong in their confidence that it's going to be shallow. It's not going to be shallow. It is going to be massive. And of course, I don't think the yield curve is is all that important. You know, when when it wasn't until the yield curve inverted that everybody started saying, oh, oh, recession, recession, because the yield curve inverted. The yield curve is not going to matter. And in fact, I think when the recession actually starts, the yield curve won't be inverted. In fact, it's not inverted anymore. Yields backed up a bit since that one day that we actually got the tens uh, below the Fed funds rate. But I do believe that interest rates are going to start to rise. I think the market is wrong in moving interest rates lower, I think they're going to rise, but that's not going to mean there's not going to be a recession. 
In fact, the markets seem to be taking their cue for the bond market. When interest rates start to rise, the stock market rises because the idea is, oh, rates are rising, so it's okay. There's not going to be a recession. But as rates start to fall, the market is going down because now the market is again afraid that the weakness in the bond market is signaling a recession. Ultimately, we're getting a recession regardless of where rates are. But ultimately, I mean, or I think that the yield curve will not be inverted when the recession starts. And I think it's going to steepen during the recession because I still believe that it is going to be an inflationary recession. And it's going to be a recession in which the dollar falls. You know, I was listening to an interview on CNBC today with Kyle Bass. And there's a lot of things that Kyle says that that I agree with. And he's one of the better guys out there. But one of the things where I disagree with Kyle is his call for a big increase in the dollar because he thinks that the Fed is still going to go to zero. He agrees with me on that, that we're going back to zero. But he still thinks that yields on U.S. debt will still be higher than the yields on European debt or Japanese debt or you know German debt. And so all this money is going to come piling into the U.S. dollar to take advantage of these higher yields, which is a bunch of BS because our yields are really not higher than the yields in Germany or Japan. I mean, nominally they're higher, but if you adjust them for inflation, we have higher rates of inflation in America than they do in Germany and Japan. So once you adjust them for inflation, they're not you know, that much higher. But then if you're living in Germany, if you're living in Japan and you're looking for a safe haven, right? And you're thinking about buying, you know, German government bonds or Japanese government bonds. But then you look over to the U.S. and you say, hey, wait a minute, I can get an extra 1% if I buy U.S. treasuries. You're not going to do that because if you buy U.S. treasuries and you live in Germany, what happens if the dollar goes down and the euro goes up? What happens if the dollar drops by 10%? Well, you've just lost 10% of your euros. I mean, that's a lot of risk to get an extra 1% of yield because if you're looking for a safe place to park your money, you don't want to take currency risk. Same thing as if you're in Japan. If you're in Japan and you know, you're looking at, well, should I put my money in treasuries? Well, now you have to worry if the dollar goes down. Now, the only way that you could really say that the yields in the U.S. are higher than the yields in Germany or Japan is if German or Japanese buyers can hedge out the currency risk and still have a positive yield differential. If that is the case, well, then sure, right? If you're in Germany and you can buy U.S. government treasuries, hedge all the currency risk and still come out with a higher yield than the yield on German government bonds, well, then maybe you would do it, assuming you would think that the U.S. government and the German government are equal in credit quality and neither is likely to default, right? But the real risk is inflation. But you can hedge that risk, right, in, in the Forex markets. But the cost of hedging your currency risk destroys all of the positive yield differential by going to the U.S. So I don't think Bass is right. I don't see a massive movement of global money, global capital in the U.S. chasing our higher nominal yields when the real yields are actually going to be lower. But what's really going to put the downward pressure on the dollar is the severity of the recession that we are entering into and what is going to happen to uh, the U.S. economy when the dollar goes down and the inflation rate goes up and pressure on long-term interest rates is going to move higher 
right? Not lower. See, right now, everybody is assuming that, oh, if the U.S. goes into recession, there's going to be no inflation. But if we have a recession with higher inflation, you can't make a case for buying treasuries because treasuries have to reflect the loss of value of the currency over the duration of the maturity of that bond. And so if people, you know, finally perceive of the inflation problem, well, then that is going to exacerbate the severity of this downturn, which is already going to be severe based on all the mistakes that were made. But when you compound that with rising inflation and rising interest rates in a recession, which we haven't experienced since the 1970s, the difference is the United States was a much stronger economy in the 1970s than it is today. We still had trade surpluses, not trade deficits. We were still a creditor nation in the 1970s. You know, not the world's biggest debtor nation like we are today. And we were able to put an end to the 1970s with Ronald Reagan and Paul Volcker. And we were able to usher in the 1980s. And we were actually able to cut taxes without cutting government spending and run up the deficits because the national debt relative to GDP was still small. That was a mistake because of politics. Ronald Reagan could not get a Democratic Congress to agree to reduce spending, but he was able to get the reductions in taxes. But more importantly, they had the monetary policy. They had tight monetary policy to counteract that, and yields were going up. The dollar became attractive again. The dollar was collapsing in the 1970s, but that real positive yield differential uh, put a floor beneath the dollar, and that caused capital to move into the United States, and the reduction in taxes increased the returns on that capital, and so we were able to have uh, a, a recovery in the 1980s, but we're not going to be re able to recover from this. It is going to be impossible uh, for that to happen because once the inflation starts to pick up, we don't have a Paul Volcker that's going to you know, raise interest rates. I mean, look, look what just happened with um, Powell. Powell cut rates. We got to two and a half percent and the heat was too hot. He got out of the kitchen and they cut rates two and a half percent. That's it. Or two and a quarter. We're back at two percent. Right. So we're not even close to that. And as much as Powell wants to pretend he's independent, he's not. As the economic data actually comes out, we get some worse data uh, than the bad data that we already have. But I think what the Fed is waiting for is maybe a backup in unemployment, right? Which, of course, is a lagging indicator, right? By the time you get the big jump in unemployment, right, the, the rise in unemployment claims and the layoffs, well, you're already in recession, right? right? If the Fed thinks that they're going to try to anticipate it based on looking at a lagging indicator, that's ridiculous. But, of course, again, the Fed, they just want to deny any recession exists, right? They want to pretend that the economy is good for as long as possible. Not only do they have the political reasons for doing that, right? The, the Trump administration wants everybody to believe that the economy is great, at least long enough to reelect Trump, right? They, they, don't, they know they can't stop the recession, but their policy is meant to delay the onset of the recession, even if it makes it worse, because the worst thing for our, an incumbent is that they don't get reelected. So they're mainly concerned about about politics, not about economics. But the Fed is also concerned about the politics of it, but they're also concerned about confidence. They don't want to raise any red flags. They don't want to let the recession cat out of the bag, right? They don't want consumers or businesses to realize that the Fed expects a recession or they'll alter their behavior 
and and accelerate the onset of that recession, which is not what they want to do. They want to uh, postpone the onset. But again, more and more anecdotal evidence, too, keeps coming out. Look at the layoffs announced by U.S. Steel today, which, again, is another embarrassment to the president that U.S. Steel is laying off hundreds of workers. Uh, of course, you know, the president said we're bringing steel back again, right? You know, our steel industry is booming. Look at USX stock. It's down over 65% since Trump was elected, even though the stock market is higher than when Trump was elected, based on a huge gain we had in 2017, uh, U.S. Steel is down 65 percent. I mean, if he is saving the steel industry, if the American steel industry is back, why is stock of U.S. Steel collapsing? And if you look at a chart, I mean, there's no bottom in sight. I mean, this thing could keep on imploding. And in fact, most of the declines have happened since the tariffs, right? So the tariffs were enacted to protect the steel industry, and the steel industry has suffered more. And if you remember, at the time, I said that. I said the tariffs were actually going to end up hurting the steel industry, not helping it, and that's exactly what's happened. Because first of all, everybody knows that the tariffs are temporary. They're not permanent, right? So nobody is going to invest in more capacity in steel based on some type of competitive edge that only exists based on a temporary tariff, but also that the tariffs were hurting other American companies, automobile companies, uh, by forcing them to buy more expensive steel. It was making their products less competitive and therefore ultimately reducing their value for American steel in the long run because it was making other American manufacturers less competitive on the global market. And that's what's happening. And look at what's happening to our automobile companies. Uh, you know, these, these, the only thing propping them up is cheap money. That's it. And the cheap money isn't going to be here forever. In fact, another big problem or another thing that evidences the big problems in the economy is look at the Russell 2000. I mean, this thing is down now, what, about 14% from its high. It's um, officially back in correction territory, but not too far off from bear market territory. But one of the interesting statistics, and I got, I actually, you know, found this out because my son Spencer pointed it out to me while we were uh, traveling in, in Italy. But a statistic is that if you look at the Russell 2000 as, you know, in proportion to the S&P 500, right, as a ratio, right, and that would basically be measuring the value of those stocks versus the value of the S&P 500, that that ratio is now all the way down to its lowest level since 2009, which was, you know, I think even March, March of 2009, I think was the, the time it was maybe lower than it is today, which was, you know, the, the low that the market made uh, before the huge rebound that we had. That was the absolute low from the collapse of the financial crisis. And of course, when Donald Trump was elected president, everybody thought that the index, or at least after he was elected, right, and once the market rallied, I remember everybody was saying, buy the Russell, buy the Russell 2000, because this is a pure play on the Trump boom, right? Because this is domestic stocks. These are, you know, small stocks. I remember Mr. Wonderful, uh, Kevin O'Leary was on CNBC. You got to buy the Russell 2000. You got to buy these small stocks because they're going to benefit from the strong economy. They're going to benefit from the tax cuts that you don't want to buy the S&P 500 because you got all those multinationals in there and you have to worry about all the problems overseas. So you just want to focus on the pure domestic play to really play the Trump boom. Well, the Russell 2000 has done worse. 
than any of the under index. The worst index you could have bought, if you were really bullish on the U.S. stock market, you'd have been better off with the S&P or the Dow than the Russell 2000. Uh, and, and so the Russell 2000 is the one that's the weakest now. Right? So if everybody is saying that it's the global economy that's the problem, why is the Russell the weakest of the indexes? If it's foreign stocks that are the problem, why are the domestic stocks, the ones that don't have any international exposure, why are these ones so vulnerable? In fact, I was watching this guy, you know, Mohammed El Arian was on CNBC, and he says some of the most ridiculous things. But one of the things that he said is that the U.S., we don't have to worry about all this stuff because America is least dependent on the global economy than any other country, right? It doesn't really matter that other countries are dependent on what happens outside, but America is not. That maybe on the margin, it plays a small part, but relative to all the other countries, we're like an island unto ourselves. And so it doesn't matter about global trade, uh, about what's happening in other countries, that we don't depend on the global economy, that we're the most independent nation, which is completely wrong. He's got it ass backwards, right? We, we depend more on the global economy than any other nation. We are more dependent. We depend on the global economy to produce all the stuff that we consume. All the products that are on all these shelves, we have to import them. And even though maybe those imports themselves represent a small part of the economy, they represent a vital part. And if you pull that part out, the rest of it comes collapsing down because there's a lot of spending and employment that would go away if those imports went away. Because it, it's not like we can produce the stuff ourselves. We can't. So we rely on foreign nations to manufacture and supply us with all this merchandise. And then we, we also depend on them to loan us the money. We have these huge deficits, annual budget deficits, trade deficits, national debt, and a large portion of that is financed from abroad. We rely on foreign lending to prop up this economy. Now, what would happen if those foreign lenders went away? Well, interest rates would soar and everything would come collapsing down. Now, the only way to stop interest rates from soaring would be for the Federal Reserve to buy up all those bonds, to monetize all that debt. But then we would have much more inflation. In fact, the main reason that we don't have a lot more of measurable inflation now, apart from the fact that the government is measuring it wrong and deliberately so with their, you know, their, their phony CPI statistics, but one of the main reasons is our ability to export all the inflation that we create to the rest of the world. So if we can't export that inflation to the rest of the world, if the world is not willing to import that inflation, well, then the inflation would stay right here. And if we had much higher inflation in the United States, well, Americans would be seeing an even faster degradation in their standard of living. We would see even more upward pressure on interest rates. And this whole economy, this whole house of cards economy, would come tumbling down. So for Elarian to say that we do not need the rest of the world, that we are less dependent on the rest of the world, shows a complete lack of understanding of the dynamics behind this economy. And that lack of understanding is pretty much shared by everybody. Right? That's why nobody is looking for the right information. Right? All they can see, oh, a, a negative yield curve. Oh, maybe that means there's going to be a recession. Forget about that. Look at all of the other 
uh, reasons to believe that there's going to be a recession, the, the negative yield curve is low on the list of all the things that should be screaming recession. And again, as I said, it'll make sense to me if when we hit a recession, the yield curve is not negative. Right. Because that's what everybody is looking at. Right. They think, ah, oh, as long as we have a positive yield curve, we can't have a recession. And that's B.S. We're going to have a recession and the yield curve is going to steepen because it is going to be an inflationary recession. In fact, the gold market and the gold traders still haven't figured this out. You know, gold is just above fifteen hundred dollars an ounce. It's been pretty volatile. The trading range has really been, you know, below fifteen hundred, maybe in the high fourteen nineties. Anything below fifteen hundred or close to fifteen hundred now is a buy in this range. I think the resistance is maybe around fifteen fifty, fifteen forty ish, is where we've been trading. But if you look at how gold's been trading, it's really been trading inverse with the stock market, right? When the stock market is up, gold is down. When the stock market is down, gold is up. The Dow was down about a hundred. 170 points today. About half those losses happened in the last 15 minutes or so. Uh, but gold was strong all day and gold stocks were strong. And so the the investors are thinking that, oh, you know, it's, it's, it's good to buy gold when the stock market is going down. But if the stock market is going up, they're selling gold, but they still haven't figured out that it doesn't matter. Because the only reason the stock market may go up is because the central banks are going to create more inflation to prop it up, right? They're going to cut interest rates. They're going to print money. In fact, they're even talking about negative interest rates in the United States. I mean, they're talking about doing this, right? They're trying to reassure the markets that they got plenty of ammunition. Even though rates are at 2%, they can go negative, right? That we're going to have negative interest rates. We're going to have more quantitative easing, right? All this stuff is coming to prop up the economy and the markets, but it's all positive for gold. See, it doesn't matter if the market goes down, right? That puts more pressure on the central banks to print money to stop the markets from going down. That's good for gold. And to the extent that the markets are going up because of the monetary stimulus being provided to prop them up, that's also good for gold. In fact, inflation is better for gold than it is for stocks, unless, of course, you're talking about gold stocks, which, of course, will get the best of both worlds. And nobody is recommending them. I mean, I'm seeing some guys. Mark Mobius was just interviewed recently who actually he's out in the Caribbean with me. He's in the Bahamas. Uh, and um, but he's out there saying that you got to have 10% at least in physical gold. And, you know, he, he wasn't talking so much about gold stocks, just 10% in physical gold. And the interviewer said, well, what's what price? Where should you buy? And Mobius's response was any price, just buy. Don't wait for a dip, just buy. And I agree. I mean, the price of gold right now is is inexpensive. Now, we have been having a little bit of a resistance at 1525. We've been above it a couple of times. That's this, you know, Harry Dent has that number. He also lives here in, in Puerto Rico with me. And Harry's made a big deal about 1525 because I think that was a key low on the way down that we broke. And when we broke that low, you know, we went all the way down to 1,050. And so he thinks that that's a technical, uh, technically significant number that we should not trade above. And that if we do trade above it or close above it, which we haven't really done, we haven't closed above it. We've traded above it a couple of times. But we haven't closed above it. But I think we're going to close above it. But once we do, well, then even Harry Dan, I think, thinks gold's going much higher. Now, uh, I don't know that he thinks it's going to make a new high. I think it's going to make a new high. In fact, you know, Joe Kernan, I, I put out a tweet today because I was listening on CNBC and, and Anthony Pompliano, who is the guy, I did a debate with him 
on CNBC South Africa. That's the only CNBC network that's let me on is Africa because they wanted to have a Bitcoin debate. So I did a debate with this guy, Anthony Pompliani, nice guy, uh, but, you know, totally, you know, drunk to Bitcoin Kool-Aid. But he's on CNBC all the time touting Bitcoin. And he was on there with uh, with Joe Kernan. And Joe is just eating this stuff up. I mean, he is like, it's a love fest, uh, you know, with, with, with Bitcoin and Pompliani. I mean, he's he's become like one of the biggest Bitcoin, you know, pumpers on, on television, right? He's, you know, and, and the Bitcoin community loves him because he's so friendly to Bitcoin. And and so to me, you know, I put out a tweet because I remember when I used to go out there and, and go on CNBC and say, buy gold, when I used to go on Squawk Box on his show, yeah, he would always give me a hard time, I mean, about it. You know, he would, you know, yet he just lobs softballs at Pompliano. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't give him a hard time. He says, oh, this is great, buy Bitcoin. Meanwhile, Bitcoin is a bubble that's going to pop just like, uh, the uh, the dot com bubble that you know he reported on, or, or or the housing bubble. Oh, you know, and by the way, I almost forgot too. On that day that the Dow Jones dropped 800 points with the yield curve inversion, a Bitcoin actually dropped by a larger percentage than did the Dow. I mean, Bitcoin was down more than any of these assets, and so I thought it was interesting that on the day that the yuan you know, broke seven, right? And gold went up and Bitcoin went up. The media, I mean, CNBC in particular, spent a lot more time covering Bitcoin's move up than gold's move up. And it was the new gold, the digital gold, and it's a safe haven and it's going up because people are worried. Yet when the Dow dropped 800 points, Bitcoin dropped more than the Dow, proving that it's not a safe haven. Gold was up on that day. Gold had a nice up day and, and Bitcoin went down. And so where was the coverage? And obviously, again, this proves that it was not a safe haven. In fact, if you go back to the day the yuan broke seven, had you bought Bitcoin that day, it was on a Sunday, had you bought Bitcoin on that Monday or Tuesday, you're down considerably today. Maybe you're down 5 to 10%. I'm not really sure. But the price of Bitcoin initially rose up to 1200 on you know within a couple of days of that move and then pulled all the way back down below 1000 Right. It had about a 20 percent decline if you had bought it as a hedge. I mean, imagine a guy worried about the yuan. The yuan has barely dropped. It hasn't even fallen one percent more than when it was at seven. So imagine a guy trying to hedge a one percent loss and he buys Bitcoin and he loses 20 percent on his hedge. I mean, you can't hedge something. By, with something riskier than what you're hedging, gold is higher. Had you bought gold uh, the day after, two days after the yuan went through seven, you're ahead a few percent right now. That's an actual hedge. Bitcoin is a gamble. But I remember one of the earliest appearances I made on Squawk Box, he was on there and Mark Haynes was on there who passed away, uh, unfortunately, uh, many years ago. Uh, but I was on with Mark Haynes and I... This is like my the second time I was on CNBC, like in 2005. And I said, Mark, you know, gold has gone up about 30 bucks, 40 bucks since the last time I was uh, in this studio. And at that time, it had just moved up to 400. It had got above $400 an ounce. And they were like making fun of me. And Mark Haynes said, gold, who cares about the price of gold? I, I care about the price of this or the price of that, but I couldn't care less about the price of gold, right? And it gone about 400. And I was saying, look, you may not care about it now, but eventually you will care about it. And, and eventually they will. And eventually Joe Kern is going to care about it. But when, after I, you know, basically said, hey, Joe was making fun of me for recommending gold 
Uh, but now he's, you know, he's not making fun of Pomp for recommending Bitcoin. In fact, he's touting Bitcoin. He's recommending Bitcoin. I said that he was wrong to discourage people from buying gold uh, back in 2005 and 2006. And he's also wrong encouraging people to buy Bitcoin now. And then he actually replied to my tweet by posting a headline from a story that CNBC wrote about me many, many years ago. Probably, I don't remember what it was, maybe 2011 or 12 or whenever. And, I, and the headline was, Peter Schiff predicts 5,000 gold in two years, right? To show, aha, you see, I'm wrong. I predicted 5,000 gold in two years. Now, first of all, I didn't predict it in two years. That was the headline. If you actually listen to the interview, I said, I think gold can hit 5,000 in a few years. Because someone asked me, well, how long is it going to take? I said, I don't know. I think it can take a few years. We can get there in a few years. So I don't know what a few is. Is it three years? Is it four years? Whatever. It's more years than I thought. I would I, At the time I did that interview... I thought that we would be at 5,000 gold by now, right? So clearly I was wrong on my timing. Uh, I was early on my gold 5,000. But Joe Kernan wants to make a big deal about the fact that I said gold would go to 5,000 and it's not there. Well, you know, gold's a lot higher today than it was when I first went on CNBC and started recommending it when it was below 300. But it is going to hit 5,000. I am as confident as ever. In fact, it's going to go a lot higher than 5,000 now. My target is much higher because of all of the mistakes and all the money we've printed since I did that interview. So when gold is at 5,000 or 10,000, the fact that it's a few years later than I thought is meaningless, right? What means something is that I knew enough back then to recognize that gold would go to 5,000 because I recognized the mistakes that the Federal Reserve was making. Joe Kernan and his buddies on CNBC didn't recognize the mistakes then, and they still don't recognize those mistakes. That's why they don't understand why gold's going up. And all they can do is say, hey, Peter, you said gold was going to go to 5,000 and it didn't happen. So you were wrong. I wasn't wrong. Yes, I was off on the timing, but I'm not off on my understanding of what was going to drive gold to that price. And these guys didn't believe that gold would go up and they still don't believe it because they still don't understand it. In fact, I read this article. I think it was, I don't know, it was Business Insider or uh, Yahoo Finance or whoever put up an article. And maybe they, I think they were basing it on my my appearance that I did from uh, Italy on Fox Business. They had me on the line. I put that up on the YouTube channel. But this guy wrote an article, you know, why Peter Schiff is wrong on the economy, right? Don't listen to me. I'm wrong. I don't know what I'm talking about. And what he used as proof that I don't know what I was talking about was an article that referenced my hyperinflation call where I was saying, hey, quantitative easing, this is bad. You know, we're going to have hyperinflation. And there was an article that came out and said that that call was like one of the worst calls ever made. Like he was he was writing a list of the worst calls ever made about the economy. And maybe it was the five worst, or the 10 worst. I forget. But I was one of them for my hyperinflation call. Now, missing from that list, right, were all the people who said we weren't going to have a recession right when, before the Great Recession. Right. I mean, wasn't that a worse call than mine saying everything is great? Like Larry Kudlow's call or Ben Bernanke's call that the subprime problem was contained and there was nothing to worry about. I mean, doesn't that rate high on the list of bad economic calls? I mean, there are a lot of people that have made far worse calls than me. And of course, nobody wants to recognize the calls that I did make and that I did get right. They just want to sit there and focus on the fact that I said that, you know, we'd have hyperinflation and we have it. Now, meanwhile, I never said we'd have hyperinflation for sure. I said that hyperinflation was a possibility. It was a probability, a worst case probability. But if we do end up with hyperinflation, the reason that we're going to go there 
the beginning of that process, where the forces were set in motion, was when the Fed did QE1. I was 100% correct. When I was warning that quantitative easing could lead to hyperinflation, I was correct. The fact that it hasn't led us there yet doesn't change anything. Because once we went down that road, we started this cycle that we can't get out of. We started a cycle of it creating an economy that is completely dependent on interest rates being lower and lower continuously so that the debt bubble can get bigger and bigger and bigger to the point that now the highest we could get rates was 2.5%, and now we have to go back to zero. Now we have to go negative. Now we have to do more QE. And then what? To try to create another bubble? And then how high would rates get that time? 1% before we have to cut? And then we have to go even more negative? I mean, I think this is the end of it. I don't think there's another bubble that we can blow that's bigger than the one that's in the process of popping now. I think we have reached the end of that road, right? We have kicked a can as far as the can can possibly be kicked. And all the forecasts that I made back then about all the worst-case scenarios that could happen when all those things happen my my uh, forecast back then, my warnings were 100% correct. I mean, do you think the historians, when they write the history books about this time period, do you think they're going to say I was wrong because I was five or six or even 10 years too early on the forecast that I was making for the ultimate consequences of the policy mistakes that were being made by the Fed? Of course not. Right? Th 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 these years are insignificant to what's happening. The people who got it wrong were the people who supported these policies at the time they were being implemented, who couldn't see where they were leading us and who still don't understand where we are today because they don't understand the significance of the mistakes that were made along the way. And now they don't understand the things that are happening now are not just happening out of left field. They're happening because of the mistakes that we made. That's why I was able to forecast the 2008 financial crisis. That's why I understood the consequence of the housing bubble, because I understood the mistakes that the Federal Reserve was making to create this problem. I understood that the, the mistakes and the negative consequences that government policy was having to distort the markets. Well, that understanding didn't go away. I still have the understanding, but... What didn't go away was the lack of understanding that everybody had who was blindsided by those events. And now they're just as enamored, right? They're just as clueless because they've had enough uh, of the Fed's cheap money to get drunk again. And now they think everything is great, uh, just the way they thought everything was great uh, in 2007. Larry Kudlow thinks it's all great, just the way he thought uh, in 2007. I think one of the only people who knows it's not great is Donald Trump. Right? Because despite what he's saying, the fact that he's demanding rate cuts, the fact he's demanding deficit-busting tax cuts shows that the president knows that we have a bubble. And he knows that time is not on his side because he needs to keep this thing going until after the election. But another reason that this recession is going to be so bad, and I, had, I was on, I think, uh, RT on Boom Bus the other day, and again, another guy was on there with me. And he was talking about the fact that this recession would be shallow, which, of course, I said earlier in this podcast, there's no way it's going to be shallow. It's going to be deep. I mean, it's going to be as deep as possible, given uh, how much monetary stimulus uh, was needed to produce the high. This is going to be the biggest hangover yet. But the other reason that this recession is going to be so bad is because it's going to be the catalyst to turn the economy over to the socialists. Why was the Great Recession so long. 
It was because Herbert Hoover, right, made the mistake of increasing government spending, increasing taxes, trying to do his own versions of bailouts and stimulus, right? The, the very policies that, that Hoover used to turn the, the, the downturn into the Depression, Roosevelt initially criticized all that. He criticized the budget deficits. He criticized the government intervention under Hoover. But then as soon as he won, he, he repeated the same mistakes, only on a bigger scale, and he made the Depression great. The Depression lasted as long as it did because government got in the way of the free market and didn't let it fix the mistakes that were made during the boom that was a consequence of artificially low interest rates. Well, this recession is going to be even greater because we are going to pass the baton from Trump to a socialist. And they're going to finish the New Deal policies of FDR. I mean, that's basically what they're saying, that uh, Franklin Roosevelt didn't go far enough. He started the process, but now we need to complete the process. And so this crop of democratic socialists is going to do for this recession what Roosevelt did for the Depression. He made it great. He elongated it. It took a lot longer for the economy to recover because of all of the mistakes made by an activist government under first uh, Hoover and then Roosevelt. Well, the same thing is going to happen now. So this shallow recession, if it's still shallow, when Trump turns over the White House to the Socialist Democrats, they're going to make it much deeper because they are going to increase the amount of government. We're going to get more government spending. We're going to get all sorts of bailouts and stimulus. We're going to have some tax hikes on the rich. That's not going to generate a lot of revenue, but it is going to undermine economic growth even further. So this is going to be a more extended contraction than the one that we had in the 1930s, but we are not going to have the benefit of falling consumer prices because we're not on a gold standard anymore. We're on a fiat standard. They're going to create money out of thin air. They're going to do modern monetary theory. So this is going to be an inflationary depression. And yes, we may in fact have hyperinflation, runaway inflation, in which case the call that I made back then, which was labeled the worst call in uh, in history will end up going down as the greatest call in history because calling for hyperinflation in the United States, in the U.S. dollar, if it actually happens, right, that is a significant call that is extremely accurate calling for the demise of the reserve currency of the world, something that nobody at that time was worried about. And I was worried about it because I understood that we were going down a road that would lead to hyperinflation unless we veer from that road. And up, up until this point, we have not veered from that road. We have simply stepped on the gas. We're continuing to head to hyperinflation. And the longer we stay on this road, the longer it takes for us to try to turn off it, the harder it becomes. That is the problem. Because now, in order to avoid hyperinflation, which we still could do, the Fed has to slam on the brakes even harder, which means interest rates have to rise even further, which means the collapse is that much greater. Because the only way to avoid hyperinflation is to pop the bubbles, to let the stock market tank, the real estate market tank, the bond market tank, to force all the defaults, to force all the liquidations, to admit all of your past mistakes. You have to stop doing this. You have to admit that your previous policy uh, decisions were a mistake, that cutting rates was a mistake, that QE was a mistake. If you refuse to admit those mistakes and continue to push the envelope, if you continue to take the stimulus, then you overdose on stimulus and you get hyperinflation.